morning, everyone. Um, happy Sunday. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I'm going to open in prayer. Um, thank God for this time. Ask for some wisdom, and we're going to jump right in. God, we welcome you into the space, and um, we want to do that every second of the morning, just constantly tuning our ears and our hearts to you. I ask that you would uh, just make us aware of what you're doing and lift our eyes off of ourselves in order to see it. Um, God, I thank you for this uh, beautiful weekend we've had. Um, and um, God, I also just, in, in light of tomorrow's holiday, um, I just I thank you for the men and women that have lost their lives um, in service of our country, and we grieve a war-torn world, um, but we honor the lives of those um, who have gone before us. Um, God, we look to you in this time to uh, be our good shepherd, and I thank you for your compassionate heart towards us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, if you have a Bible, turn to Psalm 120. We are going to wrap up the book of Psalms. Um, it's Sorry, not the entire book. This is a series. We have barely touched the book of Psalms. Um, but open up to 120. And if you look down, take take note of the heading that you see there. On if um, so, if you if you have a paper Bible, you'll see this. You'll see a little heading that says "A Song of Ascent." Um, Hebrew, it's uh, "Ashir Ashir Allah," a song of ascent, or literally going up, a song of going up. Um, there are fifteen of these, fifteen going up songs, and they run from one twenty to to one thirty four, and um, they sort of make way for the grand finale of the book of Psalms, which is like all of the praise that comes at the end. It's like the big clash of symbols, and that's the epic conclusion to the book. But before you get there, you have the going up Psalms. Um, So the praise Psalms would have been probably a more intuitive place to end this sermon series. Um, But man, the Psalms of Ascent have just totally captured my imagination as of late. And so um, if you're willing, I want to actually dive into these today to wrap up this series. Um, So what does Allah or going up mean. Um, Traditionally, the sort of big picture interpretation is that these psalms have been arranged as a sort of uh, like liturgical reading for someone traveling up to the temple. Um, They're they're pretty short. They're easily memorized. So some people have actually taken them to be psalms that you would say as you ascend each step of the temple. You would sort of go up a step and say say one of these psalms, then you go up another step. It's one interpretation. Um, others think that they were recited, the going up actually refers to going up out of exile. And so they're to be understood in the mind and the mouths of those coming back to the land. It's one interpretation. And then others think that going up actually refers to the, um, like the little mnemonic devices that sort of stack on top of each other. So actually the poetry of the Psalms themselves. Uh, whatever the case, this little collection of poetry became the official collection of songs sung at the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booze that happens in the autumn, sort of celebrates God's provision in the wilderness. Um, so I say all that to say this, whenever that happens in, in biblical scholarship, where you have a 
vast array of interpretations, and all of them are really um, well-sourced, and there's good evidence for them. Um, The best thing to do, I think, in these moments is to just approach in humility and sort of let this be an opportunity for God to ignite our own imaginations and to just take us into the feeling of of this poetry. Um, Because remember, when we read the Bible, if you took my hermeneutics class, but also you should just know this in general— when you're reading and interpreting scripture, you're practicing hermeneutics, which is the art and science of interpreting the Bible is what theologians call it. Now, it's a science because there are rules. You can't just rip things out of context and make a text mean whatever you want. There are rules. But then we find these texts where you realize, oh, there's kind of like more than one way to look at this. And so they say it's an art. You need you need the Holy Spirit. You need to be able to enter into God's sort of imaginative world that he's giving to you. And um, we're, each diff- we're all different. And so that's how the Bible works, by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful. And so the Psalms, I'd argue, um, they're just a very concentrated way um, th- to read the Bible and, and invite us into this, this act of becoming artists, cr- Christian artists, where our emotions and our imaginations are being constantly pressed and shaped and formed. Um, and so this book is just messing with us. And so my, my own imagination has been sparked by these Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent. And so, um, I want to just kind of share with you what I've been noticing. And I think that there is without a doubt inside of these 15 Psalms, a, a very clear progression of someone getting closer and closer to the presence of God. And um, that's what I'm interested in and in exploring today as a way to kind of conclude this series. Um, so let's just start. In Psalm 120, I'm not going to be able to read every word of all 15 psalms, as you can imagine, but highlight reel. You ready? 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. This is the first song of going up. So immediately we're invited into a very clear scene. Um, We're to identify with a pilgrim, sort of groping about in the fog of a deceitful and sort of dangerous, treacherous place. Um, the pilgrim poet, the psalmist, whoever he is, holds peace within his heart. Um, shalom is what he's committed to. But when he looks around at the mess all around him, all he sees is war. And so he's in Meshech and Kedar, so sort of like these far out locations, these regions, when he'd rather just be home, um, dwelling among God's people in Zion. So the core feeling of Psalm 120 is this like distress and dissatisfaction. This is how they start. Distress and dissatisfaction. Something is wrong about the place I live in that I'm forced to dwell. And I can feel it. So now um, go to Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. 
The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So the poet, um, weary in sort of dwelling in chaos, he looks up and there in the distance, he can just make out the hills. Um, and for the ancient Jewish pilgrim, the mountains, um, mountains meant the mountain, the holy mountain, where heaven and earth sort of embraced one another. And then humanity was welcomed in to that embrace. And so um, though the sight is a distant one, um, you, can sort of, you can sort of feel the hope. This is the core feeling of Psalm 121. It's relief and hope at the sight of the hills. Um, as we mentioned last week and the previous weeks, um, there's a monumental task ahead of us, ahead of the church right now, to sort of um, patiently unpack the grief and the tragedy of a year like 2020. It's not going to happen overnight. We're gonna have to, it's going to be an ongoing process. Um, and we took a small stab at that last week, and we'll continue to do so. Um, so without minimizing that, I don't want to minimize that at all. I actually want to draw our attention just shortly, a little bit, to a remarkably sort of awe-inspiring thing that happened in 2020. Because um, while the human world was sort of reeling from a global pandemic, um, the truth is that when it went into lockdown, the um, new possibilities opened up in the natural world. It was an unreal year for the natural world. So you probably all read viral news reports of like bird song being heard for the first time in cities by just like people with their windows open. <laughs> like I can hear a bird. Um, or uh, animals in zoos, like rare species were mating, and having babies. It's like, well, they just needed some quiet, some privacy. To... <laughs> um, but one of the most famous reports um, came from India. Um, India is notorious for having some of the worst air um, on planet Earth. And so it, it just, it tops air quality charts every year. But in 2020, just a couple weeks into lockdown, um, I think like 21 days, three weeks, residents of Punjab and several other cities in northern Italy, or um, excuse me, India, took to social media with images that went viral because for the first time in 30 years, um, the Himalayan mountain range, next slide, you can see this, the Himalayan mountain range was visible from their homes. Um, go ahead and go to the next picture. So it's coming into focus. So um, Himalayas are famously home to Earth's highest peaks. They're, it's a jarring mountain range. Obviously, Mount Everest being in the Himalayas. Um, but despite their height, despite their footprint, their Olympic-sized presence on planet Earth, um, they were invisible to the Indian countryside because of air pollution. You just couldn't see them. And so a whole generation grew up not even knowing that they were right there from, from the view of their homes. Um, so I actually, I want to pause and be sensitive this morning because in light of, man, just the national suffering hap um, happening in India right now because of COVID-19, I don't want to communicate for a moment that this is some sort of like silver lining or just happy, happy thing that kind of goes above it all. But um, to me, this picture sort of serves as a way to pray for our brothers and sisters in India that are suffering right now. This is like, um, as the smoke cleared, they were able to see this mountain range. And um, man, as you can imagine, it was reported that when people started catching sight of the Himalayas, it was overwhelmingly emotional. 
for some of these people. Could you, um, could you imagine being a 30-year-old resident of Punjab, and for the first time in your life, you're seeing these mountains? It's like un- just out of your window. Or, or imagine being a 50-year-old resident, and you have like foggy memories of when you were 20, like seeing it, and then they just went away forever. We live in such a clear part of the world. You can see Mount Hood all the time. It'd be so sad if you just lost sight of it. Um, so, so this is the image of the psalmist. In the fog of wandering, in a place, you know, it's just in a place that's not his home. He's clearly not home. He's upset. He looks up and he sees the hills. Um, and the sight of them and what they mean just gets into his bones. He's filled with hope and he gains this perspective and he prepares to ascend. And so his desire is to meet with God. And um, we obviously don't have time to read all of these Psalms. So I, I want to start to begin the ascension process. Go to Psalm 122. We read this. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. So here we go. The pilgrim's gone up, and he's at last come to the gates of the city now. And in his soul, he can feel the burden of homesickness starting to lift. So the temple is in view. You can just sort of, you're invited to picture the scene. The temple's in view, the top of the mountain. And the rest of the world is sort of in view below, and the core feeling is celebration. We're in the gates now. And um, he looks up and he starts to prepare for the trek, the final trek. Go down to Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us. For we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. So I want to pause and reflect on this section for a moment. Notice that as the pilgrim looks up and sort of sees the temple, his imagination starts to fire. And what he sees is the creator God enthroned, um, seated in the heavens, the Lord of lords, and his feet are like the, the psalmist talk about his feet being on earth. The earth is his footstool. So the image is that temple is where that connection's happening. It's this like glorious touchdown point of God in the world. And as he sort of envisions that, in, in light of that lofty vision, he becomes even more aware of that which has just totally worn him out. In light of that, He's exhausted at what is not that. (laughs) We've had more than enough of contempt, he says. Our soul has had more than enough. So this psalm is all about the heightened sense of contrast that comes when we draw near to God. God's presence pumps blood back into our veins where we were once numb. This is what he does. And this has a double effect. We not only get to open our eyes and feel and see his beauty, his glory as we get closer, but we also begin to feel afresh the heartache of living in a broken world, that contrast. The contrast is highlighted because where we were once numb, we now feel. We feel both the joy of getting closer to God and then, man, things that never used to break our hearts starts to break our hearts. And so we can envision now the pilgrim. He's advancing up the hill. He's shoulder to shoulder with his brothers and sisters. He's weary, but he's hopeful. 
And now with eyes fixed on the temple, you get the expression in Psalm 124. Um, Let's read verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump to 8. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So Psalm 124 is a response to that complaint that angst brought up in 123. As we tell the truth about the pain where we, we feel living in a broken world, we also carry with us the memory of what God is capable of, what he's done, who, who he is. So our, our help is in the name of the Lord. And now check this out. Linked closely with that theme in 124, you get 125. Verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So um, we're invited to imagine the sort of confidence we're to have in the Lord when we read those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, (laughs) which cannot be moved, but abides forever. The pilgrim's sandals are literally on this mountain as he's walking up it. Could you imagine? This is a very visceral expression of confidence that you're walking on that very mountain. And you say, this is what it's like to trust in the Lord. It's like this mountain right here. And then he looks over his shoulders and he sees the valley below and he sees those rolling hills which surround the Temple Mount. And he says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. It's an expression of such confidence. Um, So I was talking to someone in our church recently who's going through a, a pretty challenging time. And this is someone who I just, I deeply admire. I admire um, uh, her walk with the Lord. I think it's awe-inspiring. Um, it's a walk that's marked with just genuine faith. It's unceasing prayer. Um, and um, I think what, why I'm so drawn to her maturity is because it's just, it's so humble. She's one of the most humble people I know. And I was talking with her about the challenge she was facing, and she said something interesting. Um, to summarize, she said, It's one of those things where I know 100% that God is inviting my family into this. Speaking of sort of the trial. I know 100% that God's inviting my family into this. We know, we know we're being obedient. We know we're in obedience. And so there's this special gift of grace where we're like carried through the trial. Because we know we're in obedience. And I just have been thinking about it all week. It's this right here. Despite the trial, there was a freedom and a lightness and a confidence um, in her voice that most of us just crave. We crave that. Um, and yet we forget where confidence comes from. <laughs> the, the woman, uh, this woman, she, she shares the confidence found in the songs of ascent. As we draw near to the presence of God, eagerly desiring to find him, we're filled in time with an inexplicable trust to meet head on the grief that we're going to encounter in life. Um, and that's, and by the way, these Psalms, that's not to make light of any of the trials. Um, even the confidence is not without acknowledgement of the memory of the hardship. So the next song, sorry, I know we're going fast, but these are great. You have to read them all in in one go because they're designed that way. I think look at Psalm 126. It's an accurate portrait into the human heart that now must hold intention, confidence, but also painful memory. It's not going to compromise one over the other. So start in verse 4 with me of Psalm 126, and you'll sort of see the core themes here. 
Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So um, the people who witnessed the Himalayas for the first time, as sort of the smog over India uh, dissipated, also had to face the harsh, harsh reality of a pandemic and air pollution. It's like it's not without pain, right? And so they could hope for an India where the Himalayas are always present, um, but not without grappling with where they were at and the sort of work that has to get done to even consider that future. So the pilgrim of Psalm 126 understands that any future joy can only truly come about because it was first sown as tears in the wilderness. And true, true joy is what's resurrected out of true sorrow. And so drawing near to the presence of God means learning how to hold intention, hope, and grief, and working through grief enough to see the hope resurrect out. So in light of all this, um, when, we call, when we come to Psalm 127 and 128, these are the twin sister um, wisdom psalms in the Ascension Psalms. Here, the poet pauses in humility, um, and this is what often happens when the Bible holds intention something, hope and pain, something like that, wisdom comes out. And so as he's holding intention, wisdom, um, hope and pain, this is the word of wisdom he has. With eyes fixed on the temple, he says, 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Heard this before? Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So it's so much more significant if you imagine he's in the city looking around. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. So as we draw near to God, in order to find wisdom, we must ask the question, is the Lord building this? Is he in this? Um, a team of scholars that worked on the New International Commentary for the Psalms, which is outstanding, by the way. I highly recommend that read. Um, they say this. I thought it was great. For each pilgrim to Jerusalem, each worshiper, the word rings true. What we build and keep watch over, what we rise early for and stay up late tending in our lives, only matters if God is a part of it. Children are indeed a building project of life. But the term children includes far more than our biological offspring. The fruit of our womb may be a project to end hunger in our community. The hope and encouragement we give to the seniors who wait anxiously every week for our visits. The changed lives of teens who come to our church on Friday evenings instead of cruising with their friends. Also, who uses the word cruising with their friends? These scholars, apparently. Hilarious. These children are building projects as the sources of our contentedness in life. The purpose for which God gives us sleep. So the wisdom we gain as we draw near to God is to honestly desire a partnership with God. To, to see him build his kingdom through us. Psalm 128 reads similarly. Again, it's the twin sister wisdom psalm. So you get um, 
this in verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. So this reads just like the book of Proverbs. It's like, class, it's like straight out of Proverbs. It's a classic reflection on living life in accordance with the designed grain of God's universe. You seek God, and good will come. But like all good wisdom in the Bible, it's always met with a counterbalance. These authors know what they're doing. So check out the next. Um, so, well, you'll see here. We're close to the temple now. So in Psalm 129, it's like this classic counterbalance. Um, read with me in verse 1. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Whew, we're back down in it. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. So um, this, is one of the, this is one of the primary lessons we're learning as a church through the Psalms right now, I think. Um, truly drawing near to God, stepping into his presence means being honest about the junk all around us. Just telling the truth about it. Um, even as the pilgrim approaches the temple, he cannot hide from God the weight he carries on his back. He does not pretend that all is well, even as he acknowledges his happy, healthy family, and he has that little wisdom bit that he dropped on us a second ago. Um, the, the truth is, is that even as he confesses confidence in the Lord, he does not lie about the pain his enemies have caused him and what he longs for the Lord to do to them. Um, in an interview, it's a, what a, a fascinating interview between Bono, the lead singer of U2, and Eugene Peterson, of all people. <laughs> Bono, um, man, those two, they're best of buds. I don't know if you guys know that. Um, Bono was reflecting on Peterson's profound pastoral and scholarly work in exploring the poetry of the Bible, and particularly the Psalms. And so he was articulating to Peterson across the table just how much of a mentor Peterson had been in, um, in his life. Um, and so of David and the other poets of the Psalms, Bono spoke very highly um, because they were honest. And Bono said, his quote was, I'm suspicious of Christians because of their lack of realism. That's what he said. <laughs> he himself claims to be a Christian, but that's what he said. Their lack of realism. And he goes, but that is not what I find in the Psalms. I just don't find that. They're not nice. They're just honest. They're so honest. Um, and so it was the gritty it was the gritty honesty of the Bible that actually lit the fire in um, Bono's faith. And then it was hilarious. It was gentle Eugene Peterson who became this role model for the rock star. I love it. Um, but drawing near to God's presence rebukes the deceiver in us. Like the closer you get to God, the less and less you'll be comfortable with lying about what's going on in your life. And the honesty of the poet then is channeled as he continues to draw near to God, it births forth something new. Look at Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. 
My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So the journey through the country to get here. The trek up the mountain, the brutal honesty before the Lord, and the punctuations of sort of celebration and trust along the road. (laughs) They all give way to this perseverance and hope. It's breaking out into real perseverance, real hope. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. O Israel, hope in the Lord. The psalmist, having taken an honest inventory, he knows deep in his bones that the Lord forgives, that he's worthy to be feared, and that he alone is the one whom he needs to wait for. So it's as if we arrive in the courts of the temple with that, this real, like, new life to perseverance and hope. We arrive in the courts of the temple, and we can feel the sort of swelling crescendo of emotion and poetry and this, this clash of symbols, and then we come to Psalm 131. Ready? Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The presence of the Lord is utterly disarming. Notice what it does. The interior of the poet's soul, the deepest part of his soul, is peaceful. So this is the metaphor. I'm, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned mother with its child. Or like a, or excuse me, a weaned child with its mother. Yikes, I don't know what that looks like. The other one. Look. So when babies are at the weaning stage, if you know this, you've been babies, they're kind of rowdy. <laughs> they're just rowdy. They want mom and they want her milk um, for comfort mostly. And, and they can get restless around mom because uh, they know that she's got milk. Um, and this picture is just profound to me. The trajectory of God's people is that they draw near to him and then they get to the point, they mature to the point where they're at rest within his embrace, not anxious about food or not antsy, not demanding, but calm. Um, I almost, I, man, this metaphor is so profound to me. Because if I were to write this, I feel like I would write, it's like an infant nursing at its mom's breast or something. That would be the most intuitive image. Like we're, we're dependent on God or something. But the psalmist spots something really profound in the weaning process where the kid learns how to relax on mom. It's really significant. And I feel like it's a subtle step in relationship that most, a lot of us are craving with God, actually. It's like we, need, we want to be like that, but we're not yet. And so drawing near to God means we learn how to let out our angst. We learn how to be honest we learn how to trust him, and then we learn how to rest upon him. Um, and then it's here at the temple where the psalmist sees heaven arm in arm with earth, the dwelling place of the Lord. And then here he recalls the promise of Second Samuel 7 where the Lord covenants with David and his future seed. So the next song is the longest of the ascents, <clears throat> and I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's, it's pretty long. 
But its heartbeat can be found in verse 11, if you want to start there with me. Uh, so this is Psalm 132, excuse me, verse, verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Go to verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Jump down a little bit more. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn um, to sprout for David. Horn is an ancient symbol for status. I will lift up the horn or make a horn to sprout for David. I've prepared a lamp for my anointed or uh, my Mashiach, my Messiah. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. So picture the scene. The pilgrim is standing on holy ground outside the very place where God sits, enthroned inside, where he meets with humans. And the climax of the liturgy is a reminder that a human one will dwell on an eternal divine throne. A son of David is coming. And somehow the exalted status of that Messiah is intimately connected with God dwelling among humans. It's all connected. And our hope is that this king is going to invade real time and space and bring us into our hope to dwell with God forever, not just at feast time. So Psalm 132, and its hope, its climactic hope for the messianic king, sets the stage for the crown jewel of the ascents. You ready? Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like, here's what it's like. The precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing life forevermore. Straightforward. So what what does it look like when God's people set their eyes on God's dwelling, when they're honest before him, when they persevere arm in arm with one another, eyes fixed on the messianic king, without ever betraying the need to grieve and mourn the evil of the world? What happens when they present themselves at the feet of the Lord? They begin to dwell together in unity. This is is the, like, unity starts to happen. And it's here. Where is it? It's in God's presence is where real unity starts to happen. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron. Like what? <laughs> so this is, a, this is a classic example of a biblical metaphor that just totally falls flat if you don't do your homework a little bit. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about what we're looking at. Aaron, obviously Aaron Benton is who we're talking about. Just kidding. Um, although he's got a great beard for to fall down. Aaron, um, the figurehead of the priesthood. Aaron. So the, the priests, who are the priests? They're this mediating, they're the mediating temple workers. Oil is meant for their anointing, what sets them up to do their job. So it's, that's the substance used to set them apart to do their job. And so what is the picture of? A unified people is like an anointed priesthood, properly dwelling on earth as they're meant to, 
but synced up in right relationship with God, going back and forth to worship God and then to serve the world. A unified people is like a priesthood rocking and rolling. See that? Is any wonder why this is the image that the New Testament authors are going to pick up on? We're supposed to be the priesthood, the royal priesthood. And then the dew of Mount, uh, the dew of Hermon. <laughs> That's okay. so. If you look at it on a map, the dew Hermon's up north. Hermon's a mountain in up in the northern part of Israel, and so it falls on the mountains of Zion, which are in the south. So um, on a on a map, it would just look like the, sort of like the trickling of water from north to south. Um. Over the entirety of the promised land is the idea. So the point is that the fighting and the bickering and the division of God's people sort of finally yields to the priestly unification over the whole land. This is what it's like when people get into the presence of God and dwell together in unity. It's amazing. So check this out. Built into our Old Testament is this hope that the true pursuit of God's presence and the work of the Messiah (laughs) would somehow bear the fruit of true unity in a divided and hostile world. Tell me the Psalms don't preach. It's like, whoa, what? Okay. Look at this next one. So we're going to keep going. After the poet casts imaginative vision for that unifying priestly work of the presence of God through the Messianic King, the decrescendo comes. And the final poem of the ascent, Psalm 134, can be understood as a sort of farewell. It's a brief word of departure before they head back to the countryside. Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. And then may the Lord bless you from Zion. And then all this falls in our laps today. So the truth is, man, these psalms are about ascending to the physical temple in Jerusalem, which we know changes for the follower of Jesus. We follow the Messiah on this side. This side, yeah, that's right, of um, fulfilled prophecy. And so God's abiding presence is, we know, within the living stones of human beings being built together into that sort of temple. Um, So... I think that's exactly the point. God is working all of this out right here now in us. Um, My hope is that as children of God and then as disciples of the Messiah, we're developing ears and eyes for God's wisdom as we find it throughout the entirety of Scripture. And the poetry of the Psalms of Ascent invite us into just a few questions here. So I want to kind of work through these and um, tune your ears. Hopefully one of them sticks out. Where, where are you and where are we on this journey into the presence of God? Your soul can find home in one of these spots. These psalms have something for everyone. Um, and my question is, are you being honest about where you're at and what's, what's going on in there? So just take inventory of your soul. Um, we move through these stages without even realizing it, I think. But today is an opportunity to sort of clarify that. And then can we... Here's another question. Can we see, even in the fog of this world, the mountain of the Lord, where the Messiah is enthroned? Um, and does that kingdom give us hope? How is our vision and imagination for seeing what God's doing? 
in what ways is he igniting our imaginations to sort of envision his presence breaking in to a broken world? And then in what ways is he asking us to reimagine our own worlds in light of his beauty? How is that contrast being lit up? Are we people marked by a commitment to press onward into the presence of God, seeking his rule, his justice, his glory? Or have we grown accustomed to living in Meshech and Kedar? It's kind of like, this is the way it is. When we go back to the countryside, have we been transformed at all? Um, Are we being um, honest with God about the valleys we see out there? The pain of living in the world or the pain that others experience living in the world? Are we developing as honest mourners and lamenters of brokenness? Or are we being hardened and annoyed? The psalmist is not hardened and annoyed. He's just devastated. When we at last avail ourselves to the beauty of God's presence, are we being quieted and calmed like weaned children with their mothers? Just are we lovely to be around? Or are we riled up, anxious, agitated, easily offended, annoying to be around? This is like... And as a people, are we being consecrated for our priestly task in the world? We are each being called as bearers of the image of God to be ambassadors of God's kingdom. So how are we stepping into that? Um, And lastly, maybe take some time this week to contemplate that God's presence at its core is purifying. He's holy. And because it's purifying, it's unifying. Um, are we being honest and humble about what divides us in effort to love one another through it and to see God work that stuff out to bring us together? Um, there you go. It's a monumental task <laughs> ahead of us, of course. Uh, Marsh, you can, I want to invite Marshall up for ministry time. Um, so we're going to do some ministry time now. If you guys want to stand, Marshall's going to lead us. Um, But thus concludes the book of Psalms.